Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get ready to get lit on literature. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> this book is is literally getting lit on literature. Oh, I think. totally. <laughs> we we chose this book a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. We picked it up um, at Barnes and Noble. A lot, yeah. When we first started the podcast, because it's about both books, book clubs, and wine, and that pairing. So we thought this eventually is just going to lead to very easy conversation, <laughs> and we sort of pushed it off. And in a way, I'm glad we did because we can kind of look back on some of the past episodes and what we've talked about, and sort of use it to compare. But this is a really funky book that turned out to be, I think, right up our our alley. Yeah, and I think it was a, a necessary read given the heavier topics we've we've come across um, lately from the School for Good Mothers, all the stuff that we read in Firekeeper's Daughter about Native American communities. I mean, we've hit on some some harsher ones lately. Yeah, we even we even managed to turn a romance novel yeah. into. <laughs> You know, a rant about policing and the prison industrial, and then, yeah, and the prison industrial complex in America. So we are going to try not to do that today and really focus on winemaking, which is so interesting because I learned a lot as someone who doesn't know a lot. And as I've said many times before, everything I've learned about wine, I've learned from Alexa. This book is a really cool way, I think, to learn a little bit about the winemaking process. If you're a beginner, if you're someone who just is curious about what it really means to to make wine. I mean, as you said to me a couple of days ago, you're basically like a fancy farmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bougie farmers need to fly. <laughs> exactly. And the, the book is titled Blush by Jamie Brenner. And this is a book that is about 360 pages long, mm-hmm. uh, but very easy to read. I mean, I, I breezed yeah, through it. it. I think you did too pretty mm-hmm. quickly. This is a book that is about uh, a few generations, right? Uh, three generations yeah, three. of um, of winemakers in Hollander Estates um, up in New York, right? Yes. And this is a family that essentially risked it all to be able to start their winery and to create a life for themselves. And what we see here are three generations primarily of women. The book definitely focuses on the women in this family and how they are trying to persevere at a time when the vineyard and the business is just not doing as well as it has in the past. They're they're struggling quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. And I like, um, like we were saying, you learned so much about wine from this book. And I love that about it because I'm reading it and I'm like wondering what Jamie's background is. The writer, I'm like, yeah, was, was she in the wine trade? Did she did she you know work a harvest one year to get all these insider tips and and knowledge? Um, and today we are. Um, I went to New York recently to the Finger Lakes, not necessarily Long Island where this book takes place, but close enough. Let's be real. And um, I brought back a ton of wine. I went to a Riesling camp. I didn't bring Riesling, though. I brought back this um, Anthony Road Wine Company Rosé. It's made of uh, Cabernet Franc, mostly. And yeah, I, I just thought it would be a wonderful pairing with the book. I'll dive into it more later. It's delicious so far. I think, yeah, I'm, I think it'll be great for you to share some anecdotes about what you experienced in New York. I mean, you said Riesling Camp. I'm sure a lot of people are scratching their heads right now yeah. <laughs> and don't know at all what that means. So I think it'll be really great for you to dive into that. And I mean, this is, as I said, it was a huge learning curve for me, right? The The winemaking practices are described um, in a very, very specific way in the book. But what I loved is that this is a book ultimately about women and when women come together and choose to come up with radical ideas that when they choose to do that and and implement them that they can indeed do anything and in this case it's save a company right yeah. we have this story which is going to sound a little typical there's the father who mm-hmm. has been the winemaker and the head of the family the, the patriarch, patriarch right for <laughs> many years and then you have his wife Vivian who was right alongside him when they decided to move to this place called the North Fork and create their winery. 
Then you've got Leah, the daughter who now lives in New York City, and she has an incredible cheese shop where she teaches people about cheese and wine. And then you have her daughter, Sadie. Uh, Sadie is in college, and she's kind of going through a little bit of a personal crisis. So she goes over to yeah. the vineyard, chooses to spend the summer there, and is a big part of the the sort of coming together of these women yeah. um, and coming up with, as I said, ideas, radical ideas to try and help save this business. And Leonard, the patriarch is really a pretty old fashioned guy. He believes that, you know, it's his way or the highway. He's been managing the estate for so long and is really, really not keen on changing anything that he has felt At all. has worked. Yeah. No, and he's a very typical character that is reflected in the wine industry itself. There are so many old men who've been working for generations and generations that refuse to change. I even think our last um, wine, Martinet Brew, um, Sarah Perez, the winemaker, I think we went through some of her anecdotes of her trying to warm up to the old men in her in her town to be able to be among the ranks of the winemakers there. So he's very typical in the real world too, not just in this book. Yeah, exactly. And winemaking is very much a boys club. You've mm -hmm. talked about that in past episodes. And so what we're seeing here is a much more intimate look at what that yeah. could mean. And because this is a pretty close knit family, you know, we're hearing things mainly from the perspective of Leah, of Vivian and of Sadie. We're really focusing on the women and the women are, are really, really fascinating because Vivian in many ways is, you know, she's used to this behavior. This behavior is what drove Leah away, right? Leah yeah. wanted to be the second generation winemaker. She wanted to work there after going to school. She wanted to really dedicate her life to the winery and was basically ousted by her father because he preferred the son to take over, yeah. even though he had absolutely no interest whatsoever uh, in taking oh. on the business. No, and when Leah was a kid, he would walk her through the fields, the vineyards. He would take her and show her the different grapes, teach her, you know, the different agricultural practices. He, it was almost like he was grooming her for it and then pulled back when she became a woman, like a grown woman and just, you know, went back to his own ways. Right. And, and it's, I think it's a really frustrating book mm -hmm. uh, to read because when you put yourself in the position of Leah, it is incredibly frustrating and incredibly difficult. And you find yourself feeling really sorry for her, but also her tenacity is is incredibly heartwarming and inspiring. Yeah. I mean, she really pushes to the limit. She leaves, you know, her her husband behind in New York just just to be able to spend time in, in the winery and really try and, and save it, right? And so this really is a book, as I've said a few times now, a book about women coming together and how when they come together, they're able to create incredible change, yeah. uh, seismic shifts, really, in, in the lives of everyone around them. And it's really the women that save the winery. That's not really a spoiler. I think it's implied. Yeah. <laughs> just from reading, yeah. Let's be just real. from reading the description. You can read a you summary and get that. <laughs> exactly. So you're not going to be too shocked. But I do love that throughout the book, it's really peppered with all of these questions that really make the reader sort of stop and think and and makes you reflect, right? In page 200, there's a moment when I believe it's Sadie who says, why do I need permission to express my wants? Men never do. <laughs> and that's absolutely right. You know, what we have here are, is a group of women who are trying to assert themselves for the better and are being shut down over and over and over again. And there are also all of these different moments where you see Leonard's son essentially failing, failing yeah. miserably, right? Horribly. And, <laughs> and really just not interested at all in the business. But the only reason he has that particular position is because he's Leonard's son, right? Mm -hmm. The son needs to take over the vineyard and, and, the, and the business. And it's just such absolute nonsense. Like I, I would say that it was really frustrating. The book is long enough to where these things become annoying so annoying reader. i think there's a scene where he's just chilling by the pool enjoying himself and they're like where is he he needs to be part of this meeting where and they couldn't find him anywhere and he's just like eating shit by the pool not caring like he literally has no interest at all in this business right and he's also kind of a piece of shit in the yeah. sense that he he mentions to leah at one point when she finds out that the business is doing really poorly and that they they might be losing you know the business 
He says, you're getting all emotional about it. And then you wonder why dad doesn't hire more women. Right? He's horrible. He's the worst. Like, he's the most annoying character. And there's this realization later in the book when, you know, he's having issues of his own with his fiance and, and he's kind of feeling a little bit emasculated because she's making money and she's able to essentially offer him an out if the business yeah. does fail. And he's like, well, I can't live off of her money. You know, I could never do that. And Vivian is like, well, why? Exactly. Well, like, well, well, I can't live off of a woman's money. And that's when she realizes that this is so much about what her children have been taught yeah. by, her, by her husband. Yeah. No, it's been ingrained in that family for so long. And it's, it's sad because in the beginning, when, when Vivian and Leonard first went to, um, you know, to start this vineyard and plant everything, she was his right hand. She was out there in the fields picking weeds with him. She was out there pruning the the vines and and doing everything manual and, and this is a woman who was very much like park avenue upper east side new york very wealthy family and she's here doing all this manual labor with him and she was good enough then but now not so much her opinion doesn't hold as much weight now it's just really frustrating Right. And she, and it's also, I think, really important to note that she was ostracized from her family as well for yes. the decision that she made to leave that life behind, right? A life of, of, of luxury, a very, e arguably a very easy life, right? Mm -hmm. And that she chooses to leave that behind. Her family was very, very upset that she chose Leonard and this potential business venture over her family and over this life. And so she sacrifices so much. And again, that also brings us back to to the, everything always leads us back to episode one in a weird way, which yeah. just goes to show that we chose the right book. <laughs> we did. But it just, it just brings you back to that conversation about selflessness and how that's kind of the most valued uh, characteristic in a woman by society. The more that you're able to lose yourself and give of yourself without caring for yourself, the more gold stars you get. And mm -hmm. it's such bullshit because at one point you don't recognize yourself and you're so far away from happy. But all of that is to say, this was her dream too, right? She yeah. sacrificed her family because this was also her dream. I mean, she really did. But but then the price that she paid was that she got ostracized mm -hmm. in the business that she helped build, in the in in the vineyard that she helped cultivate. Yeah. So it's just like I I had such anger and resentment towards Leonard throughout the book because I thought he was just an absolute fucking asshole. Right. And had no he, I mean no value. I mean he had yeah. absolutely no value. Zero. No, I, yeah, he was an asshole. He just made me so frustrated. I'm like, like how blind are you not to see that your best assets are right in front of you, your wife and your daughter. Exactly. And you drove, you essentially drove away the best assets in different instances. So it's just, ugh. All because of these preconceived ideas that mm -hmm. society teaches you and that men have in their head. And of course, not all men, but society as a whole teaches you, right? That women don't belong in places where difficult decisions are being made or that women don't don't belong at the top of a company or making executive yeah. decisions. And we know, of course, from experience that that's absolute nonsense. And, and we're living in a world, I think, that is starting to see that in a yeah. more broad and in a more general way. And we're seeing more women CEOs every day. And I mean, I think that there are still more CEOs named John than there are women, something yeah. like that, some ridiculous statistic <laughs> like that, anecdote <laughs> like that. But we are living in a time, I think, where women can be helpful when it comes to this kind of idea. And what I thought was really interesting too is that this is a family that, you know, is in many ways seeing the vineyard as not only a home and a business, but also as proof of success, yeah. proof of a family finally settling down. And I thought that there was a really beautiful moment when Vivian says, you know, Jews are a wandering people. And to me, success meant not wandering anymore. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really, really beautiful sentiment, right? Because yeah. I, I know a lot of my Jewish friends would definitely read that and be like, yeah, that's like that hits, you know, like that hits. And for them, success meant that they could quite literally plant themselves yes. in one place and live a positive life and reap what they sow, right? Mm -hmm. Like live off the land, like be living in a place where they could sustain themselves, that that was their definition of success. And so there's this horrible fear when they start to feel like they might lose all of that because then what does that say about them as mm -hmm. a family, right? That I, fe I felt that anxiety 
throughout the book from really all of the characters. Yeah, and it's, I think... They had had the farm for, for decades and decades. I'm trying to remember now and it's escaping me. But yeah. It's just like 40 years. 40 years. Something crazy. It's like just the fact that you left everything to build this life for yourself, to put down a brand new home, to put down these vines, to build. And, and their reputation was a good one. People would come and they look for Vivian and she was kind of the hostess with the mostest. Like they established themselves in that society, like essentially from nothing and to lose all of that, all of what they've worked so hard for, it's kind of, it's just everything, every validation that you had from succeeding is just ripped out from under your feet. It just felt heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and I think it also puts into perspective what a wine maker's life is like in the sense that, you know, bad weather one year can completely change and or destroy your entire what's the word yeah i mean your har- your whole harvest, harvest. product crops er- everything i mean people think of winemaking and and farming um grapes as so glamorous but it's really it's such a fickle profession and really anything can affect it like if there's too much rain one year, not, you know, too much sun, too much heat. If there's, you know, something, if there's pests in the vineyard eating your food, if there's, there's just so many ways in which it could go wrong. And that's before it even gets into the winery. There yeah. are so many, so many ways in which you could just fuck up the grapes and then, or not, not even, or planting the wrong grape in the wrong soil, which is such a, it would be such a rookie move. But, you know, if you didn't have any winemaking background, you're like, I want to start a vineyard and winery. <laughs> and then once you get into uh, the winery and you start playing with the wine and figuring out how you want to make the wine and how, you know, you want to, if you want to add anything to it, if you're going to, you know, go all natural and native yeast, if you're going to, what you're going to ferment in it. There's just so many ways in which wine can go wrong. <laughs> so That was the biggest learning curve for me, I think, is just how inconsistent yeah. every year can be. You know, you, I think you, I, I, I take it as a luxury, I guess, when I drink wine from a different year, but it's the yeah. same, you know, winemaker or whatever, and that they're so similar. I mean, I'm not sophisticated enough to, to tell the difference, but you could argue that they're consistent enough to where that's why people go back yeah. and buy the same you know, from the same winemaker, from the same brand, but it's just so, as you said, incredibly fickle. And I thought that that was so fascinating because we're thinking about, you know, we have to, we, we can't ignore the elephant in the room and that's climate change, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to change so many of the things that Everything. you know, that you were taught, that you got tested on, right? Yeah. Like all the things that you know, those things shift. Like this is a forever changing science because winemaking is is something that I think really is both things. It's both an art and it's a science. No, definitely. And it's interesting you say that because when I was in the Finger Lakes and we were talking about climate change in one of the sustainability panels, um, they were saying, you know where Germany was 30 years ago with their reasoning? That's where we are now, climate-wise. So That's terrifying. <laughs> I'm shaking my head. You guys can't see it, but that's terrifying. So it's one of those things. Yeah. I mean, besides for, you know, adaptability every year with different, you know, challenges. I know California for many years has had challenges with the wildfires that come and could just spoil a whole harvest. And it's just insane. And and all these winemakers are going to have to buck up and think of different ways in which they're going to, you know, make changes to to sustain their lifestyle. Because if you have one bad year, think about it. All that hard work to get to the winery, to make the wine, to bottle, it's all wiped out. You have to wait till right. the next uh, growing season. So it's just, it, I I couldn't do it. Right. I definitely have no patience for that. It's so frustrating. Yeah. It's so frustrating. I can't even think of like the equivalent in our fields of what it would be like. I don't want to know. No. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I mean, I think that the book was you know, successful for, for the fact that we were able to have this conversation and and talk so much about the process of winemaking. And again, how, how much you can learn about Mm -hmm. winemaking from reading this book. But I would also say it has a really, really strong message on the book side as well, right? Because it's actually a book club that Vivian and Leah and Sadie, who's my favorite character in the book, um, a book club that they create that is based on a book club that Vivian had many, many years ago with some of the other women that used to come to the winery. And it's all of these kind of, quote, trashy novels. Yeah. These like Jackie Collins novels. <laughs> and 
Sadie, who, as I mentioned earlier, is having a sort of personal crisis. Her and her boyfriend break up. She's in college and she's not really doing very well with her thesis. She has a sort of like writer's block and doesn't really know how to move forward. She's reading Susan Sontag, who I love. And so I saw a little bit of the art history training come through there when I was reading. Um, and that brought me back to some stressful uh, academic days. But <laughs> I, I love that she chose Susan Sontag. And and then she realizes, you know, I'm kind of stuck. I don't know what to say about Susan T- Sontag. I know that I love, you know, her writing. I know that I love, you know, all of her writings on photography, all of these things, but I don't know where to take my thesis. And so many of us who have gone through the absolute hell that is academia, we we feel that. I know I felt that when I wrote my master's thesis, it's hell. And I love that going to the vineyard and then actually discovering these kind of trashy novels is how she sets herself back on track. It was her awakening. Yeah. And I love that because we so often, you know, we we judge women's literature or yeah. books or films that are primarily for women. We judge them as being sort of inferior or as being less important when we know, of course, that that isn't true, but it brings us back to episode two when we talked about beach read and the importance yes. of romance novels and how these are about self-reflection. These are about love, not only of others, but of yourself and, and providing that, that care for yourself. And so I love that these kind of trashy novels are what veer her back, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the right direction. Yeah, and, and inspire her. Inspire her so much. And they inspire her, but they also inspire Leah and they also inspire Vivian to then take the reins and really try and take this vineyard back. Yeah, that was the best part of it. <laughs> Seeing these trashy novels ignite like a fire in all of them to really make a change. Exactly. And I know that there's a moment when she, when it says, in the books that she had read and loved all those years earlier, the books she was revisiting now, there was always a moment in the heroine's life when she had nothing left to lose. Maybe this was their moment. And that's Vivian mm-hmm. thinking, right? She's like... I had a book club all those years ago where we would read all these books and I remember how they made me feel and I remember how much I enjoyed them. And now rereading them, I see them from a different perspective. And I love that at one point there's even a a reference to Italo Calvino in his The Uses of Literature where he says that a classic is a book that has never finished what it has to say. And that just shifts and changes your definition of what a classic can be. Yeah. Yeah. A classic can be a Jackie Collins novel. A classic doesn't have to be Candide. It does, you know what I mean? It yeah, doesn't yeah. have to be what what we read in our English lit class or whatever. You know, it can be something that we feel we can revisit over and over in our lives, and for it to provide a very different perspective or a very different view of the experience that we're living in that moment. Yeah, and I think with those novels. Um, too, when they did start the book club and all the women were sitting together around the table reading and giving their perspective, they all read the book at different times. And it was interesting to see each different age group take away different things from the book as well. Like I'm sure Vivian, when she was younger, you know, resonated with another character. And now as a matriarch and an older grandmother, she's taking away other lessons. And then Leonard's girlfriend there too, had her own opinions that, you know, stunned everyone since they didn't really Bridget. think Bridget. They didn't think much of her. This, you know, influencer thought to be bimbo. I'm saying in air quotes because I don't want to demean her like that because she really did come through th- throughout the book. Um, but it was funny to see what they all took from it, even though these books were written in like, what, the 80s? Yeah. So. Yeah, You're exactly. absolutely right. And they do read a book also by Shirley Conran, who's another kind of um, 80s camp novelist and there's this quote in the book this is loss of innocence comes when you have to deal with the real world by yourself when you learn that the first rule of life is kill or be killed and you know these are books that are written by women for women Mm -hmm. and that message I mean especially in the context of the 80s I mean I think is incredibly powerful because I think in so many ways we we actually Take that literally. I'm not trying to sound dramatic here, but I think that in many ways I would even read that literally. You know, there are moments in our lives when we're in public space or we feel that our bodies are not safe Mm -hmm. and that we imagine the worst because the worst can happen to us. Oh, for sure. And so I just, I was thinking to myself as I was reading that quote and I was reading this book, I was like, 
it could very well be that Vivian reads this and she thinks of it more from a kind of theoretical perspective and Leah might think of it in a more literal way and Sadie might think of it as more of a metaphor, right? So yeah. what you were saying is that yeah. each person based on their age and their experience is really reading these books and these quotes and applying them to their lives in their own way. But it all leads them in the same direction, which is what can we do and how can we be brave right now? Yeah. And that's the best message. I think. Yeah, agreed. No, those books were unexpectedly powerful for all of them. And there's just, there's there's so many moments, I think, where self-reflection becomes the theme. I think you especially see that with Leah. You, mm-hmm. you, you definitely hear her kind of talking through her decisions about staying at the vineyard and what that means for her. You know, she's leaving her husband behind in Manhattan during this time, and he's frustrated because he's thinking you know, I'm the one who's working your cheese shop. I need you here. I thought this was going to be our venture now that I'm retired and that I can tackle this with you. And she's saying, no, my priority is the winery. And he's saying, but you were kicked out of the winery so many years ago. How can you care about this? And so you see, you see both sides. And I saw both sides and I understood both sides and I felt his frustration, but I also felt and loved her passion. But there's this really great moment when Vivian decides to be, um, a little inappropriate almost where she kind of meddles in their relationship. She sees that something is wrong. Leah and her husband are just not quite getting along. They're not seeing eye to eye on this whole thing. And she says something to him that's very powerful. She says, the winery was always her dream. This is her chance to grab it. If you deny her this, you're no better than Leonard taking it away from her the first time around. That was a good one. That was so that good was... because even I hadn't quite seen it that way. Yeah. Right. Because Agreed. he was he was seeing it from a perspective of, well, I need to protect Leah because she was so disappointed the first time. And it led her to veer her life in a completely different direction. And if I watch her get disappointed again and lose the winery despite her best efforts, then what kind of husband am I? Right? That's kind of how I interpreted his concerns. Yeah. Same. But Vivian is absolutely right. This was her second chance to take it back. And she does. And she does it with women by her side and she does it with women quite literally pushing uh, the winery in a different direction. And I just absolutely love that that perspective became the way that he changed his mind because so often women don't have that second chance to take the reins on something that they had initially been kicked out from. Yeah, no, I'm glad she did. I, I mean, I don't know if he was just so beaten down and discouraged Leonard that he just gave it to them or, or if she, if Leah convinced him with her passion and her drive, but either way, I'm glad they were able to take it over and and move forward with it and come up with really great ideas to to keep it alive and afloat. I think that that's the only thing that I would say I I thought was a little bit unrealistic about the novel is that you have Leonard who is a complete asshole and has no interest whatsoever in hearing anybody's advice or opinion at any point. And then suddenly when things are so bad, you would think he would, he would hold on harder, but instead he suddenly gives Leah a break and gives her an opportunity. I did find that That to be a little bit unrealistic, but, um, I didn't find it unrealistic that she took it on. Right. So not really a, a spoiler here, but essentially what Leah decides to do is, is shift the perspective and shift the production of the vineyard, right? They are no, no longer they no longer have a, an, an estate's designation because they start purchasing their grapes from other vineyards and they start to produce exclusively uh, rosé. Yeah, which I thought was ballsy. And bold. bold. And terrifying. I mean, I understand the, the desire for the rosé because it is um, like a shorter process. You don't have to age it. It's fresh. It's right out the bottle. You, you can get it out much faster to more people and... and so I get that portion of it, but to eliminate your reds, to eliminate other grapes, I think they even sold the Chardonnay grapes. Like that was scary to me because if I'm going to a vineyard, especially how they were having, you know, the different people coming to the tasting room and trying things and, and that part of their business, you cannot just survive on rosé. I'm sorry. That's no. Just- okay. So. Let's add that then to the list of things that were unrealistic. Yes. So it's two things. <laughs> two things. Two things. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you if just from a pure, like from a purely rational perspective as someone who knows about wine, you know, how ridiculous is this story? 
I thought that was crazy. So, so throughout the whole time I was taking notes of like mental notes of the grapes that they were um, cultivating of the practices and everything was pretty okay. Okay. I actually was surprised that they had so many grape varietals um, being, you know, grown there, but I'm like, whatever, maybe he's into variation. I don't know his choices. We don't know with Leonard. So I thought that was a bit odd because I know, I mean, the Finger Lakes has quite a few. Long Island, all I've really ever had from Long Island was actually rosé once. Um, and then when she shifted everything just to rosé, it just kind of startled me. I feel like that would be, I mean, an, an immediate way to, to get some quick cash. But for the future, like, do you really want to be known as the vineyard that just has rosé? I don't know. That Especially was when, as you said, they had... From what I understand, they had very high quality yes. wine. They were known for having really great wine. So to I throw did. that all away, I just thought was a little bit bizarre. But same. But overall, I think I think the book was great in that it's a moment for you to learn about the winemaking process. Oh yeah. In a narrative, so you can get through it. It's fun. I think the characters were really, really well developed. I liked that they were likable. Um, easy to hate. You know what I mean? Like yeah, there was a variety yeah, yeah. in there. You're rooting for some characters. I like that you really get get into their heads. I like that the book club and that this idea of camp becomes what kind of saves the winery. You know, okay. I think that there, there were a lot of really great elements to this book and I highly recommend it. I think it's a really, really fun read. And I think that you'll you'll get emotionally attached to at least yeah. one. Like, like I did with Sadie. I just saw a lot of myself in Sadie and um, and how how badly she wanted to succeed and how badly she yes. wanted to put her her mind out there and, and, and write a great thesis. And you see her struggle so much and she's so open about that struggle. So I really, I think it's a great book. I very much appreciated reading it and, and I learned so very much, but I think it's definitely time that we chin chin and that you tell us not only about the wine, but definitely about this Riesling camp. What the hell <laughs> is a Riesling camp? It was so amazing. So one of the things that I, I really like about this book is that it focuses on an overlooked winemaking region. And, you know, when people think about wine in America, they usually think about California or Oregon. They don't really think about New York. <laughs> so even though this um, estate was in um, Long Island, I actually went to the Finger Lakes recently, which is in upstate New York. It is actually, I want to say, about 250 miles northwest of, of you know, Hollander Estates, theoretically, where they would be. So the Finger Lakes is a very interesting winemaking region. It started thousands of years ago when the Finger Lakes, like these are actual lakes that are long and skinny and vertical like fingers. That's where they get their name from. A little creepy. It's really creepy, but <laughs> they really are. When you look at them on a map, you're like, okay, I get it now. It's very literal. Um, but they were carved out by glaciers thousands of years ago and, and really deep. So the, the biggest lake, Seneca Lake, is actually about, so the longest lake, Seneca Lake, has this cut you know, from the glacier, and it's pretty much at the deepest point, 618 feet deep. So you don't really think about, when you think about a lake, you're like, I can see the bottom. No. Jesus. I know the Loch Ness Monster probably lives down there. I don't like that. So yeah, so they have, they have these finger lakes that pretty much influence the whole region's viticulture. So they're able to, to grow grapes there because of this. And the climate is very similar, like I mentioned earlier, to Germany. So you're able to grow these amazing Rieslings, these Pinot Noirs, different varieties there. And Riesling is their number one, you know, product, which, you know, Riesling Camp comes into play. So the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance apparently puts on this camp every year. And it's for trade uh, writers and, and people in the industry to go and explore. Because when you think about Riesling, you're not thinking, well, first off, Riesling is misunderstood since everyone, some people think it's sweet. Who are these people? I hate these people. I don't Who know. Who is that? I mean, a lot of people think it's sweet. And it's just not true. Riesling is probably the most, one of the most versatile grapes ever. You could make it bone dry or super dessert sweet. It's it's a beautiful grape that's just so versatile and I adore it. And that's all possible because of, of its um, razor-like acidity. You know, you could 
either make it sweet or not. It just depends. And that's the beauty of the grape. We all know that Riesling is one of my absolute favorites. Yes, definitely. It's such a good one. So the Finger Lakes is a generally newer region, winemaking region, even though they had a lot of pre-prohibition wine. It was really established as an AVA in 1982. And then by 1988, it had two sub-AVAs. And this is basically just saying that it's an American viticulture area. So it's a fairly new winemaking region by the AVA standard. Today, the region is home to almost 150 wineries and 11,000 acres of vineyards and produces almost 55,000 tons of grapes. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in the Finger Lakes. And for a while, I would say, besides for being unknown, there are some producers over there that don't necessarily make the highest quality of wine. So they may not have gotten the best of rap, but now um, it really has expanded and grown and become, you know, a region to be reckoned with. So when I was at camp, <laughs> it was 25 of us campers, and it was basically three days jam-packed of vineyard walks, visits, panels, tastings, talks, speed dating with winemakers, and like we even blended our own Rieslings and even disgorged our own uh, sparkling Riesling bottles. It was like so hands-on and so full of information. We met with winemakers, owners of estates. It was just a really great experience and very, it just gave me a lot to think about and a lot to process in my, in my journey of wine and just really, you know, diving into a grape that I love and I didn't really think much of. So I I'm, I'm stuck at a uh, sparkling Riesling. Yeah. Excuse me. They make it there. That sounds fantastic. That sounds phenomenal. It's delicious. I actually went to Dr. Frank, which is one of, I would I would say, one of the most well-known um, producers over there in the Finger Lakes. They've also been there since, um, I would say, like the 70s. I want to say this, this family. They are too a family. And it was amazing because, you know, the sparkling wine is made in the traditional method. So you have um, the, the second fermentation and the disgorging. So you get the bottle. And it has a bottle cap right now, like a pet nat would. And you essentially have to pop the cap, try not to let a ton of the juice come out. It spills everywhere. It just like fucking fizzes all over you if, if you're bad at it, which I was. Um, <laughs> and then you have to put in another um, dosage of other sparkling wine that they have. And then you cap it with a cork and then it continues in the bottle. It, it's fascinating. And we did it both manually and then on uh, machinery that they just bought to do more bottles. So yeah, I can imagine basically popping caps off of all these sparklings all day. I feel like I'd get carpal tunnel. Yeah, no, that's crazy. But I mean, that sounds, that sounds like such an incredible experience. And I love that it was like an exclusive, I mean, it's a really small group of people and you're getting to meet really influential winemakers and do things that you don't get to do even if let's say you took a trip to the Finger Lakes on your own yeah. or you took a trip to California or some winery anywhere you don't really get to do all of those things that you mentioned these are very exclusive yeah things that you got I mean to you do. have to apply for the camp there's only 25 spots and you know it's once a year it's part of the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance so it's certain members of the alliance that get to put in their product or invite the campers over so it literally every day I was probably I don't know, at five or six different places, drinking upwards 30 plus Rieslings every day. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a disaster if I tried to do that. A lot of spitting. A lot of spitting. A lot of spitting. A lot of spitting, I can imagine. So as opposed to you choosing your blend oh for this God. episode, which I saw sitting on your bar with a... <laughs> with a label on it as your name all spelled like as if maybe you had already had a little bit too much Riesling. <laughs> um, you did not choose to share that with us today because that's not accessible to everyone no. who will listen to this episode. <laughs> but the bottle that you did pop for this episode that we've been drinking, as as you guys all know, while we're recording, um, it's delicious. Can you tell us a little bit about it? And before you do, I just want to say that this is the lightest. It's so the pale. lightest rosé I've ever seen in my life. It's really pale. I actually, 
it, it almost looks like rosé from Provence. It's so pale. It's so unbelievably pale. And it's, I guess the, the bottle makes it look a little misleading because it's only yeah. once you pour it that you really see it. But I mean, it's delicious, very funky, very different from any rosé that I've ever had. Yeah, definitely. So at Riesling Camp, we actually were each paired with a, a winery buddy. And my winery buddy was Anthony Road Wine Company. And it, and it reminded me of the book because it was built from the ground up by by a couple in love with a couple of kids that decided to head onto the Finger Lakes and and open up a vineyard. <laughs> so very much mirroring um, Leah's family and Blush. And Anthony Road Wine Company, we are drinking um, their rosé that's made from uh, mostly Cabernet Franc with a little bit of Lemberger. I think, yeah, 16% Lemberger. Mm -hmm. 84% Cabernet Franc, and this was done intentionally to achieve balance. So this family, pretty much uh, John and Anne Martini, moved to Anthony Road in the Finger Lakes in 1973. They basically like loaded up the car and were like, "Let's go. We're gonna we're gonna start this adventure." Which I mean, great. I don't think I'd be able to do something like that. But very I, similar to Leonard and Vivian's yes. story which I thought was so, so appropriate. And, and neither of them had an agricultural background. So that was even more, you know, shocking, I would say. At least Leonard in the book had a, came from a family of winemakers. So he had that going for him. And, you know, together with the help of their friends and family, they planted their first five acres in the summer of 1973. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually over time and hard work, their vineyards grew to 30 acres. They, ha they popped out two more kids. <laughs> And, you know, their family just started growing, but it wasn't where they are now is nothing compared to where they came from. It wasn't always easy for them. They realized very much, I think, like in the book that you can't just live off of a winery at first when it, you know, when it first starts, you're not going to make money anytime soon, essentially. So John went to work at Cornell and actually he had Anne managing the vineyard. So it's a funny uh, opposite of the book. Besides that, in the 80s, um, in that area, they would sell a lot of their grapes to, to other wineries. And, you know, sometimes it didn't always work out. Consumers' tastes were shifting and, and some of their crops they weren't able to sell, which was kind of detrimental to the beginning years. And even though they got through it, they also even had their blush moment, which I thought was funny in like the 80s, 90s they were trying to pawn off that kind of like blush wine. And, and when I say this blush wine, I'm talking about the Sutter home, kind of sweet, kind of you find it in old white ladies' homes back yeah. in the day. And they also like had their own moment that they said, you know, tasted great, but it didn't really, it didn't stick. And then the kids started moving away. So, so a ton of things were happening as they were getting this vineyard off the ground. But in 2013, the family met over dinner and decided, like, hey, what are we doing with this? Are we going to keep the winery in the vineyard? Are we not? What's going on? And they all decided as a family, unlike some characters I know, mm -hmm. they were going to keep it and continue with, on with the foundation that John and Anne put in. So now all the kids, spouses, even grandkids are involved. And, you know, it's not just a job for them. It's a labor of love, very much like Hollander Estates. And, and they're thriving now. And it makes me happy to see two people in love with each other and wine thriving. And making great wine. Yes, it's delicious. So this wine in particular, they allowed the, the must, which is crushed fruit, to macerate for four hours before pressing, clarifying, and fermenting. And the juice was also drained from red fermentation tanks to supplement the rosé. Uh, some geeky stuff. They fermented at cool temperatures to retain the aromatics and flavors. And I think I think it's a great time for us to to sip on the wine. Do a little taste yeah. test. Yes. Cheers. Like we said, it's super pale. If you look at it, you're gonna think it's from Provence. Like, you're gonna think it's legit dirty water. It, it, like I did. It's so pale. I get like citrus on the nose. Yeah, I get like lemon. Yeah, definitely lemon. But also some like floral. Yeah. A little bit. I can't quite pin it down. Maybe like an orange blossom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's not as berry forward as I thought it would be. I mean, I get some, but not like 
Maybe strawberry. Like yeah, maybe. maybe strawberry. It's not, I would say it's more like citrusy and, and maybe herbal and floral than yeah. I would imagine. I'm going to sip it now. I don't have the vocabulary uh, that you do. And so I always end up using the same word, funky. It's yeah. just different than any rosé that I've had. I feel like when mm-hmm. I have a rosé, I know what to expect. It's just, this feels different. It's almost like it's a little more acidic or something. Yeah. What is it? It's, it's bizarre. It's like tangy. I mean, I do get a little bit of red fruit, but not as much. I, I really get, we were talking earlier when we started drinking this, before we started recording, like this kind of tart. Mm-hmm. No, that's not necessarily like a tart raspberry or a cranberry, but more so like like those yellow rainer cherries that you get. I, I kind of sense that in this. Also get like a little bit more stone fruit, maybe like a nectarine or something. Yeah. And and for you guys that don't know, because someone asked me the other day what stone fruit was, and I'm like, you know what, you're right, because I didn't know what it was before. It's fruit that has pits in it. So like apricots, peaches, um, nectarines, that kind of thing. I learned what a quince was like a week ago. Oh my God. I I only know about it through wine, but I've never even had one. I was like, what 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 is that? <laughs> and also because I'm I, I'm a Spanish speaker first and foremost, I was like, what is a quince? Quince. <laughs> Remember that was like, it's a quince. And I was like, a what? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get I might get a little melon on this too. Yeah, it's like medium acidity, I wanna say, judging by my my mouth saliva test. Mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I look Which weird. Which is pretty accurate. Yeah. Right? It's not too No, not at all. It's very yeah, it's unique. I mean, I hesitate to say that it's light because There's a lot I, of com- complexity. It's very complex. It's very complex and I and I like that it's funky and different because it also just goes to show that rose is not always what you, mm-hmm. you know, envision in your mind or what you've had in the past, like that rosés can also be funky, unique, and different. Yeah. And I think this is a really, really good example. No, I'd have to agree. This is very different, especially considering like when you look at it in your glass, you're probably thinking it's going to taste like one thing. And then you put it in your mouth and you're like, this isn't what I expected at all. Totally. No. So this is a good one. I think it's it's fun, good for summer, different. This is a different rosé. I, I wouldn't pull this out for someone who loves whispering angel or, or something. <laughs> I don't know. Something that they're like, you know, like a typical, I don't want to say a basic rosé, but like. Say it. Like, say like it. a basic rosé. This is for someone who loves rosé and, and would love a change in palette and, and, and hue and just it's it's I think it's fun. It's fresh. It's a great summer wine, I think. I mean, here in Miami, it's getting uh, hella hot these yeah. past few weeks, and <laughs> we're only at the beginning, right? It's the beginning of June, so it's only going to get hotter. So this is something that, again, you know, I can definitely picture us having, you know, outside at brunch, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in in the hot Miami sun. It's delicious. Yeah. It's, an, it's a great pick. It's great. I could drink this at the beach or on Seneca Lake. Absolutely. Where I was staying. <laughs> I miss it. Don't, I need to go don't back. Don't fall in that deep ass lake. Dude, I was staring out there. I took my drone out and I'm like, fuck, what if this falls or what if I fall into the lake? Or oh, God. It's freezing at that point. It's a deep lake. There's some other lakes that are more shallow, but that one is like deep dark yeah that's terrifying i know that there's not alligators up there because obviously reptiles can't survive there but i was kind of looking and just kind of wondering that's your miami coming out totally i'm like body see, of water we see alligators every I'm like what lake like at least don't every jump week. in <laughs> you look at eat it <laughs> like we see crocodiles like you know crossing the street <sighs> I mean, miami is just Awful. miami is is the jungle but yeah, in its own way. <laughs> but not here. On that note, <laughs> uh, and this and this is really um, well priced wine. You could find it on their website for just eighteen dollars. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, and the the great thing about a lot of the Finger Lakes wines too is since they aren't, I'm not going to say as sought out after. I'm going to say more like it's smaller production, so that so not as much is you know shipped out to different states and cities, and it's the the distribution isn't as large. So there's not, um, I don't know, not people don't know about it as much. So it's not like there's that high 
I don't know, like when you think about burgundies and stuff right. from France or Bordeaux, like there's this certain prestige to it that you're like, oh, I'm going to pay a lot for that because it's coming from this region. Everyone wants that. Right. Whereas here, these wines are amazing, but they're still priced at a great value because people, not enough people know about them yet. It's a hidden gem. Yes, totally a hidden gem. So you get this for $18 on their website. I don't know if you could find this at a store necessarily right now, maybe in the future, maybe, you know, right. There's more education around it. Maybe their production gets bigger. Um, we'll just wait and see, but there are some wines from the finger lakes that you can find in Miami. Um, Vina, which we're probably going to eat at later. Yeah. In an hour, in an hour has, um, a couple of finger lakes wines that I've purchased there before. So just keep an eye out whenever you go to a wine shop, ask them about the finger lakes and see if they have anything for you. Yeah. I think it's great that, um, that you chose this wine, not only because obviously it pairs so well with the book, but I think it'll open people's eyes to a new region that, mm-hmm. that they didn't know about. And I know that most of our listeners or a lot of our listeners are here in the U.S. So, you know, this is a wine that is accessible to you. So it's just a really great opportunity for you to kind of branch out and try something from a region that maybe you haven't tried. I had never tried anything from the Finger Lakes until yeah. um, until we had the, the, um, the Riesling. Yeah, yeah, the Riesling. I wanted to say... I know we had the M- Empire. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah you one. had a Magnum bottle yes. that you that you that you cracked open on Halloween. Yes. And then I forgot what happened after that. <laughs> we drank a lot. But it was excellent. It was and so fun. I actually have a bottle chilling in my fridge right now because I liked it so much. So I mean, I think it's just cool to to find a new region and yeah. kind of experiment with that. But I highly recommend this wine. I mean, I've truly liked every wine that we've drank for this podcast so far, honestly. But I think that this one is just, it's so different from what I was expecting that Same. I'm really excited about it. Yay. And I really want people to give this one a try and tell us what they think. Because for someone who just assumes that rosé is always kind of the same, I was so pleasantly surprised. And I really, really enjoyed that. Yay. My job here is done. Your job here is done. <laughs> so... Um, We leave you with that. Make sure to uh, follow us on Instagram, um, subscribe to our podcast, like it, rate it, wherever you get your podcasts, Um, subscribe to our newsletter, go on our shop, get some fabulous merch, and till the next time. Till the next time. Cheers. Cheers.